Book Three, Chapter Eleven, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Houghton Tower. Chapter Eleven, Fatality. Along the eastern terrace a youth and maiden were pacing slowly. They had stolen forth unperceived from the revel, and passing through a door standing invitingly open, had entered the garden. Though overjoyed in each other's presence, the solemn beauty of the night, so powerful in its contrast to the riotous scenes they had just quitted, profoundly impressed them. Above were the deep serene heavens, lighted up by the starry host and their radiant queen. Below, the immemorial woods, steeped in silvery mists, arising from the stream flowing past them. All nature was hushed in holy rest. In opposition to the flood of soft light emanating from the lovely planet overhead, and which turned all it fell on, whether tree or tower or stream, to beauty, was the artificial glare caused by the torches near the pavilion, while the discordant sounds occasioned by the minstrels tuning their instruments disturbed the repose. As they went on, however, these sounds were lost in the distance, and the glare of the torches was excluded by intervening trees. Then the moon looked down lovingly upon them, and the only music that reached their ears arose from the nightingales. After a pause they walked on again, hand in hand, gazing at each other, at the glorious heavens, and drinking in the thrilling melody of the songsters of the grove. At the angle of the terrace was a small arbour, placed in the midst of a bosquet, and they sat down within it. Then, and not till then, did their thoughts find vent in words. Forgetting the sorrows they had endured, and the perils by which they were environed, they found in their deep mutual love a shield against the sharpest arrows of fate. In low, gentle accents they breathed their passion, solemnly plighting their faith before all-seeing heaven. Poor souls, they were happy then, intensely happy. Alas, that their happiness should be so short, for those few moments of bliss, stolen from a waste of tears, were all that was allowed them. Inexorable fate still dogged their footsteps. Amid the bosquet stood a listener to their converse, a little girl with high shoulders and sharp features on which diabolical malice was stamped. Two yellow eyes glistened through the leaves beside her, marking the presence of a cat. As the lovers breathed their vows, and indulged in hopes never to be realised, the wicked child grinned, clenched her hands, and grudging them their short-lived happiness, seemed inclined to interrupt it. Some stronger motive, however, kept her quiet. What are the pair talking of now? She hears her own name mentioned by the maiden, who speaks of her with pity, almost with affection, pardons her for the mischief she has done her, and hopes heaven will pardon her likewise. But she knows not the full extent of the girl's malignity, or even her gentle heart must have been roused to resentment. The little girl, however, feels no compunction. Infernal malice has taken possession of her heart, and crushed every kindly feeling within it, 
she hates all those that compassionate her, and returns evil for good. What are the lovers talking of now? Of their first meeting at Whaley Abbey, when one was May Queen, and by her beauty and simplicity won the other's heart, losing her own at the same time. A bright, unclouded career seemed to lie before them then. Woefully had it darkened since. Alas! Alas! The little girl smiles. She hopes they will go on. She likes to hear them talk thus. Past happiness is ever remembered with a pang by the wretched, and they were happy then. Go on! Go on! But they are silent for a while, for they wish to dwell on that hopeful, that blissful season, and a nightingale, alighting on a bough above them, pours forth its sweet plaint, as if in response to their tender emotions. They praise the bird's song, and it suddenly ceases. For the little girl, full of malevolence, stretches forth her hand, and it drops to the ground as if stricken by a dart. "'Is thy heart broken, poor bird?' exclaimed the young man, taking up the hapless songster, yet warm and palpitating. "'To die in the midst of thy song is hard.' "'Very hard.' "'replied the maiden tearfully. "'Its fate seems a type of our own.' "'The little girl laughed, but in a low tone, and to herself. "'The pair then grew sad. "'This slight incident had touched them deeply, "'and their conversation took on a melancholy turn. "'They spoke of the blights that had nipped their love in the bud, "'of the canker that had eaten into its heart, of the destiny that so relentlessly pursued them, threatening to separate them for ever. The little girl laughed merrily. Then they spoke of the grave, and of hope beyond the grave, and they spoke cheerfully. The little girl could laugh no longer, for with her all beyond the grave was despair. After that they spoke of the terrible power that Satan had lately obtained in that unhappy district, of the arts he had employed, and of the votaries he had won. Both prayed fervently that his snares might be circumvented, and his rule destroyed. During this part of the discourse the cat swelled to the size of a tiger, and his eyes glared like fiery coals. He made a motion as if he would spring forward, but the voice of prayer arrested him, and he shrank back to his former size. "'Poor Jennet is ensnared by the fiend,' murmured the maiden, "'and will perish eternally. Would I could save her?' "'It cannot be,' replied the young man. "'She is beyond redemption.' The little girl gnashed her teeth with rage. "'But my mother, I do not now despair of her,' said Alison. "'She has broken the bondage by which she was enchained, and if she resists temptation to the last, I am assured will be saved.' "'Heaven aid her!' exclaimed Richard. Scarcely were the words uttered than the cat disappeared. "'My Tib!' "'Where are you, Tib? I want you!' cried the little girl, in a low tone. But the familiar did not respond to the call. "'Where can he have gone?' cried Jennet. Hey, "'Tib! Tib!' Still the cat came not. "'And then I mun do the work without him,' pursued the little girl, "'and I will no longer delay it.' And with this she crept steadily round the arbour, and approaching the side where Richard sat, watched an opportunity of touching him unperceived. As her finger came in contact with his frame, a pang like death shot through his heart, 
and he fell upon Alison's shoulder. "'Are you ill?' she exclaimed, gazing at his pallid features, rendered ghastly white by the moonlight. Richard could make no reply, and Alison, becoming dreadfully alarmed, was about to fly for assistance, but the young man, by a great effort, detained her. "'I'm a now run and tell Mr. Potts as who may be found wi' him,' muttered Jennet, creeping away. Just then Richard recovered his speech, but his words were faintly uttered and with difficulty. "'Alison,' he said, "'I will not attempt to disguise my condition from you. I am dying, and my death will be attributed to you. For evil-minded persons have persuaded the king that you have bewitched me, and he will believe the charge now. Oh!' "'If you would ease the pangs of death for me, "'if you would console my latest movements, "'leave me, and quit this place before it be too late.' "'Oh, Richard,' she cried distractedly, "'you ask more than I can perform. "'If you are indeed in such imminent danger, "'I will stay with you, will die with you. "'No, live for me, live. "'Save yourself, Alison,' implored the young man. "'Your danger is greater than mine. "'A dreadful death awaits you at the stake. "'Oh, mercy, mercy, heaven, spare her! "'In pity, spare her! "'Have we not suffered enough? "'I can no more. "'Farewell for ever, Alison. "'One kiss. "'The last.' "'And as their lips met, "'his strength utterly forsook him, "'and he fell backwards. "'One grave.' he murmured, "'One grave, Alison!' And so, without a groan, he expired. Alison neither screamed nor swooned, but remained in a state of stupefaction, gazing at the body. As the moon fell upon the placid features, they looked as if locked in slumber. There he lay, the young, the brave, the beautiful, the loving, the beloved. Fate had triumphed. Death had done his work. But he had only performed half his task. "'One grave! One grave! It was his last wish! It shall be so!' she cried in frenzied tones. "'I shall thus escape my enemies, and avoid the horrible and shameful death to which they would doom me!' And she snatched the dagger from the ill-fated youth's side. "'Now, fate, I defy thee!' she cried with a fearful laugh. One last look at that calm, beautiful face— one kiss of the cold lips which can no more return the endearment, and the dagger is pointed at her breast. But she is withheld by an arm of iron, and the weapon falls from her grasp. She looks up. A tall figure, clothed in the mouldering habiliments of a Cistercian monk, stands beside her. She knows the vestments at once, for she has seen them before, hanging up in the closet adjoining her mother's chamber at Whaley Abbey and the features of the ghostly monk seem familiar to her. "'Raise not thy hand against thyself,' said the phantom, in a tone of awful reproof. "'It is the fiend prompts thee to do it. He would take advantage of thy misery to destroy thee.' "'I took thee for the fiend,' replied Alison, gazing at him, with wonder rather than terror. "'Who art thou?' "'The enemy of thy enemies, and therefore thy friend.' replied the monk. I would have saved thy lover if I could, but his destiny was not to be averted. But rest content, I will avenge him. 
"'I do not want vengeance. I want to be with him,' she replied, frantically embracing the body. "'Thou wilt soon be with him,' said the phantom, in tones of deep significance. "'Arise, and come with me. Thy mother needs thy assistance.' "'My mother?' exclaimed Alison, clearing the blinding tresses from her brow. "'Where is she?' "'Follow me, and I will bring thee to her,' said the monk. "'And leave him? I cannot!' cried Alison, gazing wildly at the body. "'You must. A soul is at stake, and will perish if you come not,' said the monk. "'He is at rest, and you will speedily rejoin him.' "'With that assurance I will go.' replied Alison, with a last look at the object of her love. "'One grave! Lay us in one grave!' "'It shall be done according to your wish,' said the monk, and he glided on with noiseless footsteps. Alison followed him along the terrace. Presently they came to a dark yew-tree walk, leading to a labyrinth, and tracking it swiftly, as well as the overarched and intricate path to which it conducted, they entered a grotto, whence a flight of steps descended to a subterranean passage, hewn out of the rock. Along this passage, which was of some extent, the monk proceeded, and Alison followed him. At last they came to another flight of steps, and here the monk stopped. "'We are now beneath the pavilion where you will find your mother.' he said. Mount, the way is clear before you. I have other work to do. Alison obeyed, and as she advanced, was surprised to find the monk gone. He had neither passed her, nor ascended the steps, and must, therefore, have sunk into the earth. End of chapter 11